Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, is Massachusetts the worst state for Latinos? A recent study points to yes. Plus, a leader in the Latinx community proclaims he supports President Trump's border wall. An update on the crisis in Puerto Rico and the coming together of two marginalized communities. It's our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, beer cocktails, black wine, and homebody diners. There was a trend six, eight, ten years ago of high-end restaurants opening casual sibling mm -hmm. restaurants. Now it's going to be high-end restaurants opening delivery services. Our food and wine gurus give us the scoop on what to eat and drink now. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And Maria Kramer, reporter at the Boston Globe. Welcome, Maria. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. It's your first time with us. <laughs> I know. Let's dive right in. This study that Massachusetts is named the worst state for Latinos I'm going to ask you, are you surprised, Julio? <laughs> Am I surprised? Yeah. Of course not. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's funny. This has become a recurring theme whenever I come on your show. <laughs> the notion of the Commonwealth of the state being, the irony of it being so Latino, but at the same time, almost invisible. And, you know, look at Western Mass, look at look at north of Boston, even look in parts of Boston. It doesn't surprise me. You know, we, we have a segregated state in a lot of ways, both socially, culturally, and economically. And, you know, this report, it's funny because I try to get over the whole, like, I'm not shocked because it actually provides some really good information. You know, the, the fact that the medium income in the state for a white household is about 82000 and it's just under 40000 for Latino families. Like, that was really fascinating to me. And also just the issues of homeownership mm. and other things that do not get a lot of attention, especially, I would say, in sort of the state's media. So I'm kind of glad it came out. But at the same time, I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. Okay. Maria, are you surprised? Yes and no. Mm. I was surprised by how stark the mm. numbers are. Those are some very pointed figures. You can't ignore them. And as a reporter, I would love to dig into those numbers. What do they mean? And what are the people who are represented by those numbers? What experiences are they having? What are their lives like? The housing figure was also, to me, very startling. Um, I lived in Jamaica Plain for quite a number of years. I now live in Roxbury. And Jamaica Plain is, you know, a neighborhood that, you know, is heavily Latino. And I do wonder what the homeownership numbers there mm. are now, especially as that neighborhood has become so 
so gentrified and people are being pushed out and marginalized. I technically was pushed out. Mm. I couldn't live there anymore. I couldn't afford it. So the people who've lived there for a really long time, the Latino population that essentially made that neighborhood into what it is now, what's happening with them? So th those numbers are food for thought. I'd love to explore them. Well, you know, you mentioned Jamaica Plain, and I recall those years ago when there was a local market there, Latino <laughs> market, high and low. then it went the away high and for Whole Foods, and the whole discussion yeah. was, was that the first huge sign mm -hmm. of the changeover? I would be interested in knowing if you're going to report this, what happened if that if you use that as a timestamp, right? You know, but at the same know. time, I, I will say the stories have been out there, and there's nothing in that report that shocked me. And I've talked to, and I've covered, and and I and I think it speaks to a bigger issue of why media in Boston would be like, oh, this is interesting. So I I, I find it really hard. I, I think it speaks mm -hmm. to a deeper issue of, as to how the state really is, in, in essence, a Latino segregated. I just want to talk about these discriminatory lending practices because that's a huge yep. issue that keeps coming up in many other arenas. It circles back to that. And I think, to your point, Maria, once you get sort of beyond these right. initial shocking numbers, that's going to reveal some stuff. Yes, that's mm -hmm. that's something that you'd want to find out more about. Is this, you know, what redlining um, used to be? And that's a really frightening thought that people could be trying to buy homes, borrow money for homes, and are being left out of a market that is very hot and that a lot of other people get to participate in. On the side, exactly. if maybe. All right, well, that leads me to this other interesting story from your paper, Maria, Boston's Invisible Yet Resilient Latino Community. This is an opinion piece, and I just thought it was fascinating in, in lieu of the, the conversation we just had, and we can probably will thread through most of the other discussions we'll have today, that here we have a big population, but according to this, quasi-invisible. Now, how would you respond to quasi-invisible? What do you say to that? I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think that Latinos are quasi-invisible, and I think a big part of that is because we, we, you know, and this has been a point that's been made over and over again, but Latinos aren't just one homogenous population. It's it's a very fragmented population. We come from different cultures. Even the Spanish language is very different depending on where you, where you come from. I come from Argentina. That sounds a lot different than if you're from the Dominican Republic. Sometimes you have to be like, wait, what'd you say? I don't quite understand you, even if you're speaking Spanish to a native speaker. So the idea that we're invisible that, that we're quasi invisible makes sense to me because it's difficult to mobilize. It's difficult to get your voice out when it's not a united voice, when it's not a singular voice. There's a beauty to that difference, to that diversity within one population, one one race, but at the same time it can lead to this. It can lead to being unable to speak as one voice. I noted that when Alex Cora came, you know, I was excited because I thought, yeah, well, I was excited. I wrote a piece for ESPN about it. I'm so excited. You know, because you can't, you know, there's no taking away his his <clears throat> platform. Yeah. Because he's going to be on it whether yeah. you recognize him or not. If people don't know, he's a new Red Sox manager and he's of Puerto Rican descent. And he right away made a connection. It's no like, yeah, I'm kind of brown. It was like, you know, yeah. it was right there yeah. with the people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, you know. Wait, educate me because I didn't know that. What did he say about uh, he that? Basically, oh, he basically, yeah. yeah, he basically like acknowledged his Puerto Ricanness and and he had tipped the fact that Boston is actually a very Latino city, and it's been a Latino city for a while now, and and at least in terms mm -hmm. of what it is. I, I mean, and it, that he embraced his culture. He, he embraced right. his yeah, culture, yeah. and mm -hmm. but you know, 
having lived here since 86, having seen the community grow and having been part of the community and understand where it is, again, it's been there, right? And it's always been there. And I think we do ourselves a disservice as journalists sometimes to kind of say now, like, here's the discovery. Mm -hmm. To me, it really turned around, if we really want to talk about the Red Sox, when Pedro Martinez, Pedro Martinez owned this town as a Dominican. No more Garcia Parra. David Ortiz could probably run for mayor mm -hmm. of Boston, right? Big Poppy. That's a start. And so I think it's going to lead with sports. So someone like Alex Gore, and, you know, they went down to Puerto Rico. Right, exactly. And the Red Sox are getting involved. There's interest, right? And I think just looking at the Red Sox, there's a lot of Latinos on the team who are of high profile. With that said about this piece. And I think the point about Jeffrey Sanchez sort of being, you know, a Puerto Rican, a Latino who's in, who's in a big position in the state house, the point That's that you're representative, representative Sanchez, Sanchez mm -hmm. the point that you, there's still the power, the Latino power is just starting to bubble in the city. And I, and I, you know, I've met a lot of people covered a lot of people in the last couple of years. And when you talk about, Maria, about the fact that there's not unity, that's the very same question that people are trying to address, that they realize that the only way you're going to find power, political power in the city, is to start saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, we're different, but you know what? We have a lot more in common than, say, you know, other people in the city. So let's kind of put our differences aside. Puerto Ricans, Dominicans always had this rivalry thing going. <laughs> that needs to go away. And the fact is that Boston is becoming more immigrant. Like, go to East Boston. I mean, if it wasn't for the immigrant community in East Boston, East Boston wouldn't be what it is right now. So I think you're starting to see this issue of like, we're not, we don't have power. We don't have a voice. It's time to really begin to look at those questions and actually grab that power, Cali, because mm -hmm. that's another bigger thing. It's like we can say we're quasi invisible, but like we kind of have to start speaking as a unified voice in the city. And um, that's the feeling I'm getting and talking to mm -hmm. a lot of people. So uh, that's my guest, uh, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. And now over to you, Maria Kramer of the Boston Globe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love what you just said, Julio, about people finding their voice, because I do think that's happening, especially as the city is changing and getting more expensive and getting unlivable for some, some folks because they can't afford it and getting... I have to say, less interesting. Mm. Um, you look at Jamaica Plain, <clears throat> you look at East Boston, these are thriving, vibrant neighborhoods with great food and, you know... Cultural a, a, traditions, Exactly, too. great mm. cultural traditions mm. that... that began because of the Latino community that settled there. Mm -hmm. And to see that disappear doesn't just frighten Latin Americans. It frightens anybody who just wants to live in an interesting neighborhood. Kathleen Conti, one of our reporters, wrote this great piece about this little restaurant in Eggleston Square that was being pushed out. I loved that story because, and I really hope that they can keep their place, because so many people Name showed up. I can't remember the name. Okay. Of course, you're gonna ask okay. me. Um, okay. Somebody Google it. Yeah, okay. and, but but it's Nagelsmann Square. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be fantastic, and mm -hmm. I'm gonna go. But what I loved about it was that people lined up to get food at this place to mm. to show their support and their anger and their their fear that what makes Roxbury, what makes Jamaica Plain, what makes Eats Boston special is is going away. Well, I wanted to just underscore that when we mentioned Representative Jeffrey Sanchez, that's because he is up top, really, yeah, in terms of, of power means, brokers. Right? He's, yeah. a, he's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and that's one of the most powerful positions on Beacon Hill. That's for a, years, stepping, so, that's oh, no, a stepping stone for other things in politics. And, and I just want to put on the table that for years he had been um, pushing legislation to address bilingual education in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and then 
Now we have a new yeah. look at it because many people credit him for being in a position to actually push that forward. The piece notes, uh, Maria, that there are four high-ranking Latino officials in Governor Baker's administration, two in his office and two in his cabinet, and that the Stewart healthcare system is led by a founder and CEO of Cuban descent. So it makes it even more interesting, moving from that, to say the disappointment that some felt when the education commissioner was selected, because that looked as though that was going to be another way to begin to embrace the power, the community, and, you know, was an excellent candidate. Maria, weigh in on that. So that's a tough one, because you have two strong candidates, right? The eventual choice is concerned about diversity, does know the system very well, has made great strides while in the position in an interim way. So when I was reading that story, I, I was struggling a little bit. I, I understood the frustration because because when you look at it in the context of what this state has looked like in terms of allowing women, people of color to gain a foothold in these top positions, it's not good, right? But at the same time, he is also very qualified. It brings up that debate. Okay, are we arguing over this and are we criticizing it because he's not a person of color, because he's not a woman? Or are we arguing about it, you know, because he really isn't qualified? Not qualified is not the issue. The issue is, among many, is that all things being equal in terms of qualifications, both his mm-hmm. and Angelica Infante Green, who mm-hmm. was the candidate, the deputy commissioner at the New York State Education Department, why not make a decision in favor of diversity. The counterargument to that mm. was that they felt very comfortable with him because he'd already mm. been in the position for such a long time. Oh, I get it. And, and, had, and, been and, doing, you know, and I, had been doing well in it. Right, right. So I, I'm just saying, you know, it's just been noted that, right. that that when those, sometimes when these opportunities happen and when it's seen and they're all good candidates and all things have lined up, doesn't always go that way. And and how do we address that for all the reasons that you just said? And I like, and that article pointed out, I think there was the same controversy with Salem State College yes. where a candidate that was definitely not as qualified mm-hmm. got the position and he was you know, an established white male and he won the position over a, a woman with impeccable credentials who should have beaten him out. Right. That's, that's going to be an ongoing conversation, but... Certainly, that would if she had gotten that position, she would not have been quasi invisible. I mean, I you know, not to knock the achievements of what's happened in Lawrence, but if you want to start reflecting the public school education makeup of the state in its leadership, I think it would have sent a really amazing, powerful message. And to question how things are. Yeah, I get it. Like, white dudes get the jobs. Hmm. I mean, let's be real. I'm not saying he's not qualified, but at the same time, why not take that chance? Why not try to look at this differently? Why not say, hey, we get it. The student population is becoming more diverse, more English language learners. We want to send the right message. Hmm. And I do fear sometimes that we look at public education, especially when it comes to, you know, let's look at Lawrence and it becomes like public Pockets. education is fa- failing. And, right, I, and right, here's yeah. like, and this is how we're going to close it. And that just to me limits creativity, limits innovation. Again, I've been following the Lawrence situation closely and I understand he's done a good job. Jeff I'm not Riley. questioning Jeff Riley, mm-hmm. but it's not just Jeff mm-hmm. Riley that did that in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's remember that, you know, Parents and teachers and community members, of which they are mostly Puerto Rican, Latinos, and immigrants, like and Dominicans. So, mm-hmm. 
Why mm, not? Right. Like that's I what I was it. like. Why not take? Why not look at this a little bit differently? That's all I'm saying. I get it. Thanks, if you're Callie. just tuning in, <laughs> this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Latino Rebels and the Futura Media Group and Maria Kramer of the Boston Globe. We're discussing the local and national Latinx news you may have missed. Here's something that's interesting. A couple of um, leaders of predominantly Latin American, um, Latino, Latino American yeah. organizations are in various interactions with President Trump, not all of it pleasant. Hmm. So the organization is the League of Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, and they were very unhappy that their president, Roger C. Rocha, wrote a letter uh, congratulating President Trump on the White House's immigration framework. So first, let's listen to Brent Wiltz. He's the CEO of the League of Latin American Citizens. And um, he recorded a message on Twitter to say that the organization has censured the LULAC president for writing that letter in support of the administration's immigration policies. First, uh, the letter has been retracted, and LULAC put out its official policy on the DREAM Act. Um, We support a clean DREAM Act, end of story. Let me be very clear about that. LULAC supports a clean DREAM Act. We don't support uh, a wall on the border. We don't support additional border enforcement. We don't support cuts to family-based immigration. We don't support ending the diversity lottery. And we certainly don't support creating more detention facilities. And so we're going to stay strong on this message. And we've been communicating that with members of Congress and the White House continuously since this campaign began more than a year ago. So, Maria, why do you think the president's writing a letter congratulating President Trump when the rest of the organization is like, what are you talking about? Well, that's a great question. That's what I was wondering when, when I read that. I was trying to understand what his motivation is. You know, you know, the question I would ask him is, well, are you hoping to get something like DACA through by flattering him? You know, maybe he's appealing to you know, President Trump's ego. Maybe this is strategic. It does run very counter to what you think he would be doing in his duty, which is to stand up for this population that he represents. So I'm really baffled by his comments, and I and I was yeah. wondering if there was something more to I it. I interviewed Rocha. Um, he said he won't resign. By the yeah, way, yeah, he won't. Well, here's a couple of things people mm-hmm. understand. I interviewed him. I think two weeks ago, and he basically to answer the question, Mary, he basically like. If I don't do this, I'm not at the table, and you need mm. me at the table. Yeah. And he just kept saying it. Now, at the, the same time, LULAC, which people need to understand, it's I think it's after the NAACP, the second oldest civil rights organization, at least mm. in, in the United States, Space. organized. Okay. I mean, it was formed in the 20s or 30s. It, it has a long history. The LULAC membership, and a lot of young people, a lot of young students were like, no, we're not having it. So he did get censored censured i'm sorry mm-hmm. there's a meeting where they're very likely going to vote him out so by the oh. by the time this is mm. they're very likely going to vote him out we air this. yeah <laughs> so yeah, okay. um so who knows i mean who knows but at the same time what this brought out was the question the bigger question of like what do latino mm. political or latino organizations that focus on the community that deal with lobbying that deal mm. with trying to get legislation across how do you function in the age of trump Mm-hmm. is the bigger question. And the rank and file for LULAC clearly said, President Rocha, like, no, you can't do that. And he really kind of dug in his heels. And it was interesting when I talked to him. He was kind of saying, no, I'm, I'm kind of doing you guys, you know, I'm supposed to do this right. But people weren't having it. And it just shows it. It's, it's an example of how these organizations are, are functioning in this, in this environment. Well, it's also probably an example, uh, Maria, of because I think about the NAACP, 
which is actually nonpartisan. Yeah. And has lobbied, you know, across the board for its issues, theoretically across all parties. And then you get into a situation where, you know, what what do you do if it appears that one is not at all supportive of any of your issues and concerns? You know, by your pushing back against that, you look to be in a partisan position, even if that's not the official stance of your organization. Right. And so it's it's this very difficult situation. How do you navigate that? How do you how do you effectively represent the people that you're supposed to represent and their interests and at the same time keep your place at the table? And when you're keeping your place at the table, how do you not sell your soul? Well, that's the question. <laughs> that's I, the question. It's a very that's dramatic a question. question. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that they it, say that in, in Spanish, you know, you know, the word sell out. Yeah. Bendido. Like when if you're called a bendido. Which is someone, it's like, man, you don't want to be called a bandido. Just saying. Well, uh, you know, we got Armorosa, the poster child, to sell out. So <laughs> let's move on. That would be a <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> you know. um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radio <clears throat> with Kelly Crossley. I am here with Julio Ricardo Varela and also Maria Carema. And we're talking about issues and stories affecting the Latinx community in Massachusetts and nationwide. I want to get to Puerto Rico now because, Julio, this is something that you raised months ago about mm. the discrepancy in these death statistics. Yeah. And it's a political deal. You don't think that, you know, counting the number of dead accurately could become so political, but it has. And now people are suing to get, well, you had to, you know, raise a lot of issues about trying to get the uh, information. And now the Puerto Rico Department of Health says it's not authorized to provide updated death stati- yeah. statistics. It's First of all, the official death count by the government of Puerto Rico is 64. And still. It, still. It is, you know, we're in February. <laughs> yeah. And the reporting that I've done with the Center for Investigative Journalism out of Puerto Rico, Latino USA, Latino Rebels, plus the New York Times, plus BuzzFeed, plus CNN, it's clear that the fact is, as of January 4th, and I really want to have people understand this, mm-hmm. in September and October of 2017, compared to 2016 of those same months, there were an additional 1,194 more deaths in those two months of 2017 compared to 2016. The government of Puerto Rico created a working group on January 4th, the governor, saying that we want to review all this. So when you say that the death count is 64 and the data that you get from your own department saying that there's 1,164 more deaths, something's up. What's happened since January 4th, as a journalist, as a member of society, as a Puerto Rican, as a believer in transparency and government accountability, is shameful. Is the fact that vital statistics are not being given to the public. And the Department of Health, I I wrote a piece for Latino USA and Latino Rebels, told me last week that we're not authorized to give anything until the CDC says it's good to go, until the working group from the governor of Puerto Rico says it's okay. We, we're not giving you anything, Barella. That, mm. That's basically what they told me. Mm. And the journalist in me, the reporter in me is like, um, no. Mm. And the only way I think we get to the bottom of this, and this, the Center for Investigative Journalists, the CPI in mm. Puerto Rico, actually sued the government report. That's sued, right. To say, like, you need to give us public data. This is public data, birth certificates, death certificates. This is not the Russia tapes. And the fact that the government of Puerto Rico, the governor, the the secretary of the public security, Hector Pasquera, are being 
They're like, no, we have to come up with a working group. You're going to have to wait in April. And the Department of Health, Cali, said, we're not might even give you these statistics until June and July. That's right. And and, and, for, and who knows? They may never give them. Uh, Maria, the issue with this, in case people are saying, well, yes, we need transparency and we need to know, is that policy is developed around these very critical statistics. And the basic one is that everybody still has not been served and has made been made whole since those uh, hurricanes hit the island. And if you're still walking around saying, well, 64 people died, well, that sounds like a very different situation that if thousands of other people did. Exactly. And this is so disturbing. This is so troubling. Um, I, Julio, I mean, this everything you said, I 100% <laughs> agree with. Journal badge to journal badge. <laughs> like it. It is. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. as a journalist, you know, we're supposed to be objective and, and we're supposed to be um, considerate and mindful of, of, you know, the quote unquote, the other side. Uh, there is no other side here. The, 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 yeah. This is just a black and white issue. These numbers are part of they belong to the public. The public needs right. to know the extent of what happened, the damage, the loss, the tragedy. 64, nobody believes that. I mean, that that's a figure that just shocks the imagination. There's no way that that's accurate. And if it is, then prove it. Right. This is shrouded in a secrecy that's just inexplicable. I don't understand why it's happening, and I'm so glad you're pursuing and it. And I just want to say the attitude of the governor of Puerto Rico has been I, – I've, I've talked to the secretary of public security, Hector Pesquera, that any reporter that brings this up is working with Oliver Stone theories, which to me right. as a journalist, like it's just- Meaning you're conspiratorial. That I'm crazy. being conspiratorial yeah, where yeah. it's like, mm -hmm. I know the stories. I've seen the the pictures. We've spoken to family members who've lost their their loved ones who know that they died for lack mm -hmm. of power, for like, for, so to be told that just has been, it's been a tough one, but I, I do want to credit all the journalists at the Center for- investigative journalism, uh, BuzzFeed News, uh, uh, Frenchie Robles at the New York Times, at Arelis mm -hmm. Hernandez at the Washington Post, CNN. There's a lot of people on it. And supposedly there's a press conference this week that's going to get into more details about this working group. So I'll have more to share. All right. Well, there's a couple things I want to squeeze in in our remaining um, short period of time. Um, one thing that was uh, raised a lot uh, by a number of people is this uh, website that the president <laughs> Um, administration had said they were going to put up where it directly embraces, appeals to, makes possible access to information for Latinos. Um, in Spanish, well, right? in Spanish. Right. Mm. We've been talking about this for I don't know how long, um, Julio. <laughs> Maria, so I'm going to give you a fresh crack at it. Yeah. What's your What's your take about why it's not happening? Oh, uh, well, they're mm. they're still trying to put it together. It's yeah. <laughs> it's just taking a long time. I I that, that's a, that 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 story really struck me. I was um, I, how long has it been now? It, well, it's been since a month. the inauguration. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. it's, been, so it's, it's been, been a okay. year. It's been over and a year. And the thing is, like people were reporting, like you found this story from right. Idea, which right. I was like. It was on my radar. Like, seriously, it'd be like, oh, let me follow up. And then you found it, Maria. And I was like, that doesn't surprise me that the Spanish language version is not is not available yet. But the White House went on record around the inauguration yes, to same. say, like, we're in the – like, I They were working Sean, overtime to I even think, like, it. Sean Spicer, right? Sean yeah. Spicer actually said it. So they were like, oh, no, we're working overtime and we're going to make this happen. And so radio silence, Maria, like we like to say around here since then? <laughs> Basically, that's mm -hmm. what it's been. I mean, I'm glad the Associated Press jumped on it and, and tried to follow up to see what's going on. And one in five um, Americans, you know, are Spanish speakers – this is this is just a a matter of communicating effectively with your public, and it was something that prior administrations 
we're more than happy to do. Why is this administration unable to to get this done? It doesn't seem like you should, if you're working overtime, it doesn't seem like it should take you more than a year to get this website going. And I think it's uh, tremendously ironic that we're in the midst of this great debate about DACA uh, involving a lot of people that would probably like to see, you know, here, what is the administration's current policy as things keep changing not, with this. Yeah, it's not going to happen. With this, I, I, at this point, like, it's just well, not Well, it got turned happen. down again, this yeah. latest compromise. But not only thing. like DACA, but, but mm. just the Spanish language website after oh. a certain point. Although I will say that there is a Twitter handle called La, La Casa Blanca, which is the White House in Spanish, that is active. But What's, is well, anything who's updated on it regularly? Yeah. Oh, I know who does it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, it's Helen Aguirre Ferre, mm. who is, 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 part of, um, is, is, is part of the White House. Um, she is a Spanish language. Um, she used to be on Univision, okay. Univision News. Um, I have connections with her. I, you know, that's the person I go to when I have questions to the White House. And I haven't emailed her recently. But Maria, Maria, finding this story, I might have to email her now to see what's okay. up. And okay. lest anybody think this is a partisan issue, this did not begin under Obama. This actually began under Bush. Right. right. So right. exactly, yes. it was a Republican who started this. Um, I want to lead into this last story, squeeze it in if I can, um, by saying that the name of the restaurant that you could not remember the name <laughs> of. In Bacalor, I Googled it. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. There you no, go. Breaking news. Yeah, that that that's very important. important. That is I, uh, very important. I know. I was very shy. Every listener right now is going, I went thank blank. You. It's supposed to be really <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Yes. Thank you, Maria. Okay. Thank you. Like a couple like, that leads me to the last story that I just think is interesting. And this is, you know, I like these interesting stories we find. There are... Um, there's a, a little movement with um, a couple groups of people, some Latinos and Muslims, um, hashtag taco trucks at every mosque. So taco trucks are, you know, uh, in Orange County serving up folks at the mosque. Yeah. And it's a way of people talking about cross-cultural and enjoying, you know, good food. And as one person said, we are our neighbors, but we don't know each other and we... We go and fight for justice at protests and stand side by side, but we really don't know our stories. That's uh, Hamida, who is one of the Muslim elected officials in Orange County. What do you think? It, it was. I, it's a hat tip if people remember uh, during the election, the, the Latino for Trump supporter who was freaking out that if more Latinos would be coming into this country, there'd be taco oh, trucks right. at every corner. That's right. Remember that? Yeah. Yes. Well, this is sort of what this is yeah. sort of an extension. Yeah. And this is actually written by uh, uh, Gustavo Arellano. Uh, and he did a piece for NPR. I just think it's fantastic because I, I, I think it represents what California, like that's what's happening in California. It's like you, you have a very diverse state. Yeah. Um, it's mostly Latino, mostly predominantly Mexican, Mexican-American. And it's great. I mean, it's just it's just fantastic. Cool. And, I, and I can't wait to go. Mm. You found the story. Or, I don't know who found this story. Yes, thank you. Yes. I needed the story so much. This was much. a Kelly story. I did yes. not Kelly, find it. thank you. I, I was so happy when I read this. I encourage your listeners to please look it up. Um, it's got a wonderful picture of these women in hijabs, you know, lining up at the taco um, stand and waiting for their halal tacos. I needed to read this. It just made me feel so happy. <laughs> you know, just to, I mean, the, talk about the two most marginalized um, communities exactly. right now and them coming together in this way and breaking bread together just yeah warmed my heart and the food sounds amazing i also want to point out the cultural sustainability of tacos across all genres arenas it's it's the world's perfect food it doesn't surprise me that middle eastern food and mexican food are so (laughs) similar because they're my favorite cuisine so there you go all right well i like to end on a happy note so thank you all um for joining me today for a great conversation thanks callie (laughs) 
Julio Ricardo Varela is the co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. And Maria Kramer is a reporter at the Boston Globe. Coming up, we've already got self-driving cars, robot personal helpers, and robot vacuum cleaners. But what about a robot-powered restaurant? Plus, international chains arrive in the Bay State and high-end meals at home. You don't have to hire a personal chef, but you'll need to wait for the delivery man. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. We may be looking forward to spring on our plates and in our wine glasses, but for now, we're snuggled under blankets ordering from our favorite takeout menus. Here to tell us about what to eat and drink as we begin to phase out cold weather, I hope, for sunnier days, are our food and wine gurus. Joining me in the studio, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lover's Devotional. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. I'm glad you're here. And Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Mag. Magazine, author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook and co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, which will soon premiere its second season. Hello again, Amy. Hello. Well, let's start with you, Miss Amy, because international food chains are coming to Boston. Yeah, it's a really interesting <laughs> trend. A lot of companies are kind of launching their first American outpost in Boston. So, Do you have any idea why? I think partly it's catering to the population they know exists here. So one of the ones that opened really recently in Audubon Circle, kind of St. Mary's, Brookline area, is Cafe Landwer. It's an Israeli chain that's been around for 100 years, and they have their first American outpost here in Boston. Well, there's a huge Israeli community in Brookline, so that makes sense. In fact, it's across the street from Tate, which is, you know, a great bakery on, with sort of an Israeli accent. So um, the food's great. It's, it's a lot of really fresh Mediterranean staples incredible hummus, falafel, shakshuka, all the stuff we're kind of loving to eat right now. And then there's this restaurant that we are going to try right now, Sian <laughs> okay. Street Foods. And that's not to be confused with Sian Famous Foods, which oh. is also opening. <laughs> and that's a New York chain that's coming to Boston in a few months. And are okay. they different? They're much different? They're, they're different, okay. yes. It is a really interesting Chinese chain that's now got a, its first Boston outpost. Makes sense. Lots of Chinese students in the Boston area. And we are going to try these things called rugamo, which are these kind of, the closest thing you can compare it to is a Chinese burger. Oh. So you have a flatbread bun, which mm. looks really wonderful, and it's filled with various meaty or vegetable fillings. Mm. So here I have a cumin-scented beef mm-hmm. rugamo. Like Would anyone like to try You know that? what? It looks like a pocket. Yeah, it does. Uh, almost sandwich. Like, yeah, yes, like yes. a hot pocket. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what it looks like, a hot pocket. Half. That's right. And yes. then we have lamb. A cumin-scented lamb. Which makes sense because this is a big lamb town. I don't happen to be a lamb person, but it's a huge lamb town. And then we've got some pork here. So I'll try that one. 
This, they're really pretty. Mm. The dough, it's so, sort of like oh, the man. same. I'm loving this cumin. It's, 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 the smell is fabulous. It's really good. So my question to you is, if you were in China, is this authentic or is this I mean, made this is for the us? Same re- these are the same recipes that people are getting in China, you know, when they go into their local branch of Sian Street Foods. Yeah. So we're at a point in Boston now, in greater Boston, where we can do authentic. We don't have to do made-for-American kind of international foods. Yes, and I think it's kind of a second wave. I think this happened in the 70s as well and 80s. But a resurgence in the in interest in authentic regional Chinese food as opposed to the Chinese-American standard Peking ravioli <laughs> and crab rangoon or whatever General it is that you're going to get. which yeah. I think yeah, they exactly. made up for us. Yeah. Yeah, I don't exactly. think it exists in China, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, well, while we're tasting this delicious, and it is delicious, let's wash it down, oh, Jonathan, with a hot new trend, which is black wine. First, tell us, what is black wine? So this is a wine from Georgia, and I don't not mean Atlanta. Like, not and I don't mean like Georgia on my mind, but the Republic of Georgia, and it's a grape called Saperavi, and Saperavi in Georgian, if you translate it, it literally means paint pigment. So not just as dark as paint, but you know when you go to the hardware store and you have a color blended for you special, it's the pigment that they put in the base color of paint. In other words, don't drink this if you have white carpets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes. the name is Saperavi and it's typically called black wine mm. because I mean, look it's at this. Quite dark color. Red. It is yeah. absolutely it is. You can't see through it. It's absolutely opaque, red, purple, black. Um, this is an ancient, ancient grape from an ancient ancient winemaking part of the world. Georgia is in the running for the oldest archaeological evidence of large-scale winemaking on the planet, okay. which is about 8,000 years ago, about 6,000, 7,000 BCE. That's wow. where we find people making, not just making wine, but making wine thousands of gallons at a time. And they're finding these these ancient <laughs> casks that have a residue at the bottom. And when they test this residue, what they find is that it's wine. So here's the thing, Jonathan. It's so deep and dark, Mm. but it's light. Yeah. I would have expected a heaviness, like a cab, but it's not at all. Well, one of the things that's that's really different about this Saperavi is how it's made and how it's aged. A lot of the weight, a lot of the intensity of Cabernet and Merlot and Syrah, you know, some of that can be oak, you know, Mm, having been aged in an oak barrel or fermented in an oak barrel. That'll really give, you know, winemakers don't do this for no reason. It really gives wine a lot of oomph. And this is fermented in clay Mm. tanks. Mm. They're called quiviri. Mm -hmm. Again, it's an ancient, pre-modern winemaking technique. You know, when you think about a stainless steel tank, that lets in, like, no oxygen. Mm -hmm. You think about a a wooden wine barrel, that lets in a little bit of oxygen. Something like this, a a, a ceramic tank, that's going to allow, like, this very porous and can allow this this total uh, respiration Hmm. of the wine. And it ends up creating something, on the one hand, extremely dark and dense and black and bottom-heavy, but also with some delicate, lighter fruit flavors, too. Okay, so for both of you, because I put this together as a little meal now, my Xi'an mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> burger. And but how much is that? And how much is the wine? So how much is the Xi'an uh, burger? They range from about you know six to 
eight bucks. So, they're, so they're street cheap. fruit, yeah, street and it's food prices, and yeah. it's more of yeah, it's like a it's more of a braised meat. It's not yeah. a patty, right? Yeah. So it's all kind of braised, but it's just delicious. Yeah, it's really good. I have to say. And how much is saparavi? Fifteen. Okay. Fifteen. All right. Sixteen dollars a Cheapy? bottle. Maybe. Yes. I mean, and, and it's made to go with grilled chicken, grilled meat, grilled tuna, oh, aged yeah. cheese. So oh, just yeah. so any, people know. Yeah. You know any, what to, any of these bigger red wines are yeah. going to be just natural, great food wines. Which brings me, since I said I would put it together and be at home with myself, Amy, <laughs> I'm a part of a trend because uh, there's a whole, tr- a whole trend of people call homebody diners. And that's not a name of a diner. That's the name of we people who that's are sitting kitchen. on the couch. What, what, what we're doing. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Please talk about that trend and so, what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Some very interesting trends all coalescing to create this larger food trend. So, A recent survey, the American Time Use Survey, revealed that Americans are spending an average of eight days at home more compared with 2003. So 2012 compared with 2003, that was eight more days spent at home. One day less traveling, one week less in non-residential buildings. Interestingly, the millennials are spending 70% more time at home compared with the general population. The only people who are spending more time outside the house are people 65 and older. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. I know. Well, well, uh, downsizing. Maybe. You know, if you're, if maybe. You, you, oh, you, that's you, true. You see this yeah. trend towards people yeah. living in smaller apartments, smaller footprint homes. It's, yeah. That kind of pushes you outside a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. And then, meanwhile, mm. Morgan Stanley analysts have predicted that by 2020, 40% of all restaurant sales, and this was reported in the Globe, or $220 billion will happen online in terms of delivery. So you're seeing higher end delivery options through Caviar, which is a site that I often order food from. You can get food from places like Area 4 and Scampo and Myers and mm-hmm. Chang. And it's been a challenge for a lot of restaurants to figure out how to, out of one kitchen, cater to an infinite theoretically, Mm -hmm. audience of diners out in the world, and then you have your finite number of seats in your restaurant. What do you do? And I think it's been a trial and error process for a lot of restaurants to figure out what can we reasonably prepare? What will travel well and make us look good? That's the key. Right? So taking it to the next level, I think this is really interesting. Will Gilson at Puritan Company has actually created a separate business called the Puritan Trading Company, which is exclusively for de- mm. the delivery format. And they so have smart. It's very smart. And I, I expect to see this happening in a bunch of restaurants. And they basically have workshopped which dishes can we make in time on a schedule to get out to the customers, what travels well, what will make us look good when it arrives at their house. And so through Caviar, the delivery service, you can now get this Puritan Trading Company food. And it's a different menu from Puritan and Company. And I think that is the way we're going to go. I mean, there was a trend six, eight, ten years ago of high-end restaurants opening casual sibling Mm -hmm. restaurants. Now it's going to be high-end restaurants opening delivery services. The nice thing about it is you don't even need fancy restaurant space. You can just have a space in your kitchen that's dedicated to this service, and your your market is pretty big. So. Well, what I thought was interesting is a couple things. First of all, there is a place in uh, Needham called True Taste Seasonal Kitchen. I guess they're doing a delivery-only thing as well. I've been to Puritan, the restaurant, right. and it's so smart to know that if you want to have certain other things, you actually want the experience, and you have to come into the restaurant mm-hmm. to get yes. it. So that they can get me two times 
times if yes. I like their food yeah. in that way. I looked at the Instagram. It looks fantastic. It does. It I really already, looks good. I've never used caviar. I've used all the other ones, and people are thinking, I, you know, maybe I don't know that one, but it's the same kind of thing except different restaurants, higher-end restaurants than Uber Eats or mm-hmm. yes. a Grubhub or a uh, Eat Street, those right. kinds of services. Yeah, this, uh, is yeah. Not, this is not exactly like old-school delivery had I could I could walk and get the pizza yeah. myself, but instead yes. I'll have it delivered. This is delivery of dinner. Exactly. You know, this is delivery. Right. This is delivery of a meal, not of just some sort of thing that is in its essence a takeout dish element, which is, which is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So let me uh, remind people, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Under the Radar's food and wine experts, Jonathan Alsup of the Boston Wine School and Amy Traverso of Yankee Magazine. And we're talking about what to eat and drink as winter winds down, spring is on the horizon, we hope. Jonathan, to go along with the food that we have ordered from Puritan Trade or whomever, mm-hmm. beer cocktails. Yeah, I know you've been doing this at the wine school for a while, looking at various ways of enjoying beer. But this is interesting. Beer groni with Campari, gin, sweet vermouth, and freshly squeezed OJ as one. <laughs> this is absolutely wild. Okay. I mean, all of these things are part and parcel of America's growing love for wine, for craft beers, for craft distilled spirits. I mean, I don't think anyone saw that our love and our interest of these things would bring us to create beer cocktails. But we are. We're starting to pull this stuff together. You see see a lot of bars experimenting using wine, not just making sangria or not making some sort of Bellini like a wine cocktail, but making a cocktail, making an old-fashioned or a Manhattan-style cocktail Mm. um, using wine, using red wine, simple syrup, white wine, simple syrup. You know, another thing, as as I was looking at some of these beer cocktail ideas, one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, as the alcohol level of beer continues to get higher and higher and higher. I mean, today it is not at all unusual to see a beer that's 7% alcohol, 8% alcohol. I mean, that's practically wine. Yeah. And when you get something with those higher alcohol contents, you start having chemical reactions that go on inside the beer that create these secondary exotic flavors and aromas so that the more alcohol that's in the beer, the more beer becomes like wine Hmm, in the aesthetic Hmm. experience. The more beer becomes like distilled spirits in the aesthetic experience. And so even though it seems like a totally new idea, you know, these things are all moving in the same direction. These Mm -hmm. things are all converging. And now we're starting to experiment with really ended up with beer as a component in a cocktail. Well, it looks so, in, I was going to say, it looks interesting, except I'm not a beer person, but what were you about to say, oh, I, Well, from a restaurateur's <laughs> perspective, you know, there are degrees of liquor licenses. Sometimes you can mm. have a wine and beer oh, license and not have a spirits license, but right. this allows you to still have a cocktail menu, which right. is a huge oh, thing for a restaurant. That is yeah. big. That yeah. is big. And then you can just, you know, experiment in many ways with beer as a foundation. Yeah. Um, this beer groni is just, I know a Negroni, so this is interesting, the yeah. beer groni, so it's very interesting. Yeah, I'm um, loving that. 
Amy. Yes. Robotic kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> this is a fun. God, okay. God bless those MIT kids. I was going to say. God I was, bless. I was just going to say we've got the ro- we've got the robotic wine people to work there. In case, <laughs> in case you're high. In, in, in case, case you're you get high. You don't have to get high. What? Please explain. So a team of engineering students at MIT came up with a concept of a robotic restaurant, robotic food service technology that they first tried, they did their first launch within one of the dining halls at MIT. And this was a really small, I mean, it was maybe about the size of a dining hall table. It wasn't really huge. And it was fully automated. It could wash dishes. It could cook food. It could refrigerate food. And it could also... um, serve the food. And so it had internal sensors that monitored the temperature so that all the food remained safe. And it would look like a series of tiny cement mixers. I watched Mm. a video of this and there would be one arm that would sort of meet out the tomatoes and the curry sauce and the noodles. And then it would spin (laughs) like a cement mixer and it would mix the food and those things were heated. So it would cook as it spun. And then once it dispensed the food, um, it would then spin around and go back to the washing station and be fully cleaned. That was a fun proof of concept kind of thing that happened. But now they're turning this idea. They've graduated. They've turned this idea into an actual restaurant. It's going to be a fast, casual chain at 241 Washington Street in downtown Crossing. Isn't that something? And the consulting chef is Daniel Balud. What? So this is like serious. This isn't going to be like. chef. Yeah. Now Now, wait a minute. Now, when I go in there. Is this going to be a 3D printer? (laughs) The room will be entirely built by 3D printer. Daniel Balloon? Wow. (laughs) So I have to say, when I looked at the original menu of the concept in the MIT dining halls, it was a lot of, like, chickpea curry, (laughs) quinoa, like nothing you'd feel hugely excited. And the theory was we want to make healthy food available quickly and inexpensively. I think the level of the food preparation will be a little higher now. And I'm I'm psyched. I mean, I kn- I kind of missed automats. Like, I was a little too young mm, for yeah, the automat, right. yeah, automat era. Yeah. And I always had this longing to live in that time. And so, so this will be our version of the automat. Well, you hear yeah, chefs it, talk about, you hear chefs talk about the things that they do and the work of the kitchen. I mean, they'll talk about a lot of their work being robotic. Right. right. So now they don't have to yeah. do that. But I just want to point out that this thing makes jambalaya and mac and cheese along with some. So we're talking serious foods. Yeah. But, you know, I'm asking the questions about money. How much is this going to cost? Because this is a lot of technology, it would seem to me. I imagine it's a lot of upfront money, but Mm. then once you have the technology and you can easily replicate it and you don't have labor costs, which are the largest costs in any restaurant operation. Oh, Oh, what does that say about for labor costs? Well, I have to be, yeah, think about that. Yeah, they'll be negligible. I mean, you need to supply, you need to feed the food into the machines. Of course, there's larger questions of the work Workforce and what that means for humans, yeah. but I think if you can get investors to buy into the concept and get enough franchises going, you are going to have much higher profit margins than a traditional restaurant. Well, that is true. I just want to point out that my one of my favorite mystery writers is J.D. Robb. She's been writing a series called In Death for 100 Years, set in 2020. And in her books, from the very first one she's been writing for now 20 years, there were these machines that you go to and get the food out, like wow. just like this. Or like uh, the Jetsons or well, something, Chitty, But Chitty it was just like thing. this. It, you know, you'd go and you'd, you know, you'd get the soy burger or the whatever. That's been in her books wow. for years. 
they should get her to, you know, be an ambassador for their thing, I still have to say. Now, on the policy tax front, which we never talk about here, but we need to with regard to the wine business, because you raised a point, Jonathan, that the new tax cut bill, which is quite controversial in many circles, apparently the wine people are thrilled to death. I, yeah, <laughs> you know, very controversial, love it hate it. But the reality of the matter is, is if you're in the wine business, if you're in the spirits business, um, if you're in the craft beer business, that tax overhaul bill was a huge hit. Huge hit. I mean, it I lowered mean, in a good way a, 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 for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Blow, yes. No, no. <laughs> yeah, like a like a home yeah. like a home run yeah, style, right. a home run style hit. Excise taxes overall on wine have been reduced. There's also, and people don't necessarily know this, but there's a tiered level of excise taxation against wine hmm. based on what the alcohol level is. Hmm. So the higher the alcohol, the more tax you pay. So the excise tax has been lowered, and that threshold, that higher tax threshold, um, has also been raised. So a lot of people who are oh. paying a higher tax level are now going to be in the lower tax level, and they're going to be paying less excise tax. So the question is, does that translate to our pocketbook? We on the other end. I know it's great for the people who make, sell, but okay. are we getting a break? You know, Callie, you're really the political thinker. <laughs> you're you're oh. really the political thinker here. What's your guess? I guess not is the answer. <laughs> I'm is, guessing not. The guess is probably not. We are, pro- we are probably not going to see that at oh. the the, um, uh, hmm. at the checkout counter. We may see and more microbreweries. More ri- microbrew, yeah. more micro distilleries. And a lot of these things, in addition to being advantages to the industry at large, a lot of them are scaled especially to benefit small vineyards, small wineries. Well, see, that, small that little guy. Yeah, well, small they're all okay. little guys. And, 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 yeah. and the distillers. So, okay. So it's going to kickstart a lot of... Uh, the hope is, or the or the projections are, that it will kickstart mm-hmm. a lot of new businesses, and will open the door for a lot of new vineyards, new wineries, okay. new distillers, and new brews the, too. The good news there, I think, is for areas that are trying mm-hmm. to attract mm-hmm. tourists. If you can get a good, you know, you look at northern Vermont and people making pilgrimages to Hill Farmstead Brewery. I mean, Greensboro, Vermont had nothing to attract people except a really exceptionally beautiful lake. And mm. artists went New there cows. because nobody ever <laughs> yeah. went there. Yeah. And now I was up there a couple of months ago. There was a guy who'd driven from Wisconsin overnight with his wife and toddler just to make the pilgrimage to yeah. Hill Farmstead. So I could see there being some really nice, uh, mm. quote-unquote, trickle-down mm-hmm. benefits there. Yeah. Um, I wish it happens. just trickled on, but it's, yes. it's, apparently it's yes. not. Yeah, again, so- um, sorry about everybody else. Yeah, yeah but, too bad. Yeah, too bad. <laughs> yes. I'm here with Jonathan Alsop of the Boston Wine School and Amy Traverso of Yankee Magazine. We're talking food and wine. I got two stories and a little time to get that I want to get into. First, Amy... There's some talk that that Dorchester may be getting a food hall in the old Boston Globe building, which would be so exciting. It would be great. Yeah. There are a few. I think the food hall concept has been tested and proven in Boston. You look at the success of Italy. the I think the Boston Public Boston Market Public is market. has been finding its way, whether it's supposed to be a farmer's market or a kind of a food court, kind of a local sustainable food court. I think it's leaning more in that direction now. But I think we know that people like this. They, it's a cold city part of the year. You like being able to go somewhere indoors, sample a lot of food. So 
this concept seems to be coming to the old Glow building, which is really exciting. It's a little bit unclear what they're going for, whether it's going to be more of the food court model or more of the Italy model. Mm -hmm. Um, Will it be a lot of retail? Will it be a series of restaurants? Will it be food truck heavy where, Mm. you know, where you can park your food truck outside or have a shipping container inside that is like a little mobile kitchen? (laughs) But whatever it is, it's a big space. They can do some really, it's in a beautiful location. So you could do some really cool stuff with that. So I'm excited to see that. There's actually a couple of other, and the Fenway's going to be getting a sort of food hall called Time Out Market. Um, There's going to be some sort of bow market in Somerville as well. So So it's it's really a trend. Yeah, Yeah. and and it's a nice thing to see some kind of a positive uptick in retail where so many stores are closing in all the neighborhoods around us. And I would like to put in a plug for those small businesses that are incubating over in the Commonwealth Kitchen and hope some of them Mm. will show up in the food halls that are now being talked about around the, the city. When they have open houses, yes. they do occasionally host yeah. open houses. Check their calendar, Commonwealth Kitchen. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing, inspiring thing to go and taste yeah. that food and meet those entrepreneurs. I agree. So we got to close out, Jonathan, mm-hmm. with cannabis-infused wine. Cannabis-infused <laughs> Because everything. we're talking marijuana everything here in the state. I, I, uh, I need you to respond to that. Have you had some? I have. N- I have. N- I have not. It is just um, so. So there's a winery. He, he cal- sipped, but it's, he it's didn't, a, I know. He I, didn't I, swallow. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, so there's a winery in California called uh, Rebel Coast Winery, and they're making. It's not what we imagine, or it's not what I imagine. Okay. We picture a bunch of stoners steeping vats of weed by and wine. Okay. Not, no, not, not that. Not okay. like that. Okay. It's um. It's it's a. It's actually a de alcoholized Sauvignon Blanc, so it's a wine with no alcohol, and it's dosed with THC, and then also dosed with different aromatic components so that it tastes and smells like cannabis. Why? It's, <laughs> why? Yeah. Why? why it's yet, an, yet another delivery system. I mean, we're, we're again, we're talking, you know, we're talking the convergence of all of these different intoxicants and legalization and deregulation. You know, as weed is becoming legalized, wine is becoming deregulated. Okay. And those are those are having an effect on each other. Okay. Uh, and Melissa Etheridge, the the recording artist, she has been making as part of her. Um, this comes out of her recovery from cancer. Uh, she's oh, been making okay. weed infused and and selling weed infused uh, white wine and red wine actually for quite a few years. So okay. so so in theory, <laughs> this this is legal in California, of course. Yeah. But in theory, this is going to be illegal in Massachusetts as well and mm-hmm. the nine other cannabis legal states. There well, are chefs on Instagram now who are entirely devoted to edibles. Mm. Their brand is I make really delicious edibles. So it's it's a thing. It's okay. a big thing. Ed- edibles, it's a edibles thing. drinkables. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to leave it right there. <laughs> I thank you both for joining me. Uh, thank you, <laughs> Callie. Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. And Amy Traverso is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook, and the co-host of WG GBH's Weekends with Yankee. The second season of Weekends with Yankee begins in April. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you 
Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.